last couple of years, I actually had the privilege of learning to fly. And I got my pilot's license in the fall of last year. And actually, my friend, uh, my close friend who taught me to fly, um, was with us in chapel this morning. And so it was really neat. Um, one of the hardest things as a student pilot to learn to do is to master the approach, right? Here's the, the runway. There was a slide, but you'll just have to just imagine the table's the runway. We're going to just wing it. Okay, so there's this point right here where it's called a beam the numbers, which, you know, runways have numbers right there. And I'm right here in the airplane, and the approach is this very elegant and structured process of starting to descend, and you turn base, and you turn final. And from right here, the engine power controls, the flap settings, and the attitude of the aircraft adjusted for wind and uh, pressure, uh, like barometric pressure and everything, has to be just right, and it has to be really watched and massaged within a relatively small window of variance so that the airplane can effortlessly and elegantly make the transition from flight to ground movement with the kiss of landing gear on the runway. I spent probably 50 approaches going, if you go too fast, when you get to this point, the airplane doesn't want to go on the ground. It wants to fly because it's going too fast. So you get down, and then it starts to fly again. And the wind you know, is coming right here, and it blows you off the runway. And then you're like, I don't want to end up in the grass. And so you roll the coals, and then you go, and you have to start all over again. And the traffic control tower is like, yeah, starts laughing at you under his breath. And so then you have to come around again. And the next time, you're going too slow, and you're like, uh-oh. I got to drive this thing in and then crunch. You know, um, you're landing too hard. You, it takes a lot of effort to kind of master that approach. The funny thing is, is that the airplane, right, is perfectly designed to make that approach every time. But depending on the approach of the pilot will determine the quality of the landing. The quality of the approach determines the quality of the landing. You, you, know, you want to know why all the lights come up everywhere, right? I mean, because it's helping you. They're, the, they're giving you lights that are, you know, turn from red to green if you're low or too high, and all the, 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 the lights on the runway get closer together so that you can stay on what's called the glide slope on that approach. So when the airplane is, is, is going to make that transition smoothly. And so uh, my friend, Jim, he, he said, if you want to learn to make a good approach, you have to be a student of the airplane. The airplane's built to do this. But when you learn the aspects of the controls and what they do and why they do, and you, you become a student of the airplane, you can actually see and make that approach effortlessly. Um, the question I want to ask you today is what is your approach to God's word? Because God's word, like the plane, is the same in all of our hands. This word is the same in all 300 or so of us in this room. It's the same word. It's the same scripture. It has the same power. It has the same promises. It has the same stories. 
has the same history, it has the same future, it has the same power. It has the capacity to bear amazing fruit in all of our lives. Just like this airplane has the capacity to make an elegant landing every time. But it depends on the approach of the pilot how well that landing goes. And it depends a lot, probably sometimes more than we admit, our approach to the Word of God will impact how much fruit the Word bears in our life. And I want to be, I want to disclaim at the front, this is not about a meritocracy. You do not earn God's blessing. You do not earn God's fruitfulness. It's by His grace and His grace alone. But what we do in our hearts when we receive the Word, when we become a student of the Word, when we approach the Word, it has a different kind of fruitfulness depending on our approach. And we're going to inspect the foundations. That's what the Lord really impressed upon me in this new season at Agape is to inspect the foundations. And the foundation starts with God's word. You know, Jesus told a story about different approaches that people take with God's message. In Matthew chapter 13, verses 3 through 8, says, a far, he said, and he was preaching to a crowd, lots of people. He said, a farmer went out to sow his seed. And as he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places. <coughs> I'm pretty rocky. Where it did not have much soil. And it sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil. Everyone say good soil. Good soil. Where it produced a crop, a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. A hundredfold what was sown. That expression is like almost, if you just allow the seed of the word to go into your heart, it can produce almost infinitely more than you can think. Isn't that what the Bible says? Isn't that what he says? He says, it, inf like that, that expression, 160 or 30 times, it's like so much more than what was sown. It will bear fruit. It will bear fruit in your life. What I love about this story is, is that Jesus actually does his own interpretation, and he explains it to his friends what the story meant, just so that it wouldn't be left up to our interpretation later. Um, and that's, uh, that's really helpful for me, because I tend to get off um, and, uh, um, uh, on all sorts of things. So in, um, in Matthew 8, in the verses 18 to 23, Jesus explains what this story means. And he said, Listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom, which is the word of God, this is the message of the kingdom, and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed sown along the path. The seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy, but since they have no root, they last only a short time. 
When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. And the seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. But the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. Now, the key word there is understands. And understands is not a heady word. It's not like, um, it's not like uh, necessarily an academic word. The, the word understanding means to be able to perceive the intention. You perceive the manner in which the word was given. Because academically, we, we see in part we, we can learn from the word, but we're not, we're not going to understand every single thing that the word has in store. Every th- single thing that God has ever spoken is not going to become snapped to us in this limited lifetime that we have here on earth. But we can perceive the intention that God had when the word was sown. And the, we can perceive the intention that the Father takes with us. We can perceive his intention and we can, thereby, that is the setting for good soil. That is, when we perceive his intention, we understand the word. We understand the message. You know, my, uh, sometimes when, when I, I get cross-threaded with, uh, with my kids and needed to bring discipline, sometimes it's like I can perceive their intention. I can perceive if they're just trying to act a fool. I can perceive if they're making up stories and they're not telling me the whole truth. I can also perceive when their heart is really to help their brother or sister, but it came out wrong. I can perceive their intention. And for us, it's really important when we receive the word of God that we perceive the Father's intention. That is key to understanding the word and the treasure of God's word. Um, so I want to kind of update because we're not a very agrarian society. So how many of you are farmers in the room? There's like one, two. Yeah. So in this day and age, probably five or six out of 10 would have been farmers in some way. And so just I want to update uh, the approaches that Jesus was talking about to something maybe more culturally relevant or easier for us to understand um, in today. So the soil by the path is like a consumer. Consumers look to purchase things for their personal use. The agenda of the consumer is, what's in it for me? The consumer says, I'm uncomfortable Is what you're saying going to help me get out of this jam right now, this instant? I mean, how many of you had a friend in that situation where they're they're not really looking to change? They're not really ready to humble themselves. They just want to get out of this place of discomfort. And so if they can get something from you quickly to get themselves out of that discomfort, then they're gone and they forget who you were. But we know, we know when we're about ready to give that counsel, and, and I, in, the, in the love and compassion of God, we should give that counsel anyway. We know, or we think we know, that in three months, the consumer is going to be right back where they were a week ago in the same problem. Um, and we can be that way with God's word. We can be that way with the message of the kingdom. 
where we have not yielded, like the song says to surrender, we have not yielded our agenda. We have not yielded the things and the control, and we're just out to get a little bit of something to help us be less uncomfortable. But we don't have any real willingness to change. To a consumer, the message of the cross still seems foreign, even foolish. And the filter of the consumer, right? The filter that we receive the word through, the filter of the consumer is selfishness. Not really willing to change. Not really willing to hear from the Lord. Just looking for, and I I use this term, just looking for a quick fix. And so the seed is filtered through that selfishness. The seed is still the seed. Just like the airplane is still the plane. But our approach has filtered the seed. The rocky soil is like a literalist. Literalist, I know, is a big word. Literalist just means to take something at face value. So the literalist accepts the Bible at face value, but has a shallow faith. That's what Scripture says, the rocky soil, that is, it was shallow. They have a 2D understanding. You can always tell a literalist because they do gravity-based Bible studies. What is the Lord saying? Oh, look, it's from Isaiah again, right? The gravity-based Bible studies, literalists, are really strong in Psalms and Isaiah because they're thick books in the middle, and that's where the Bible always falls open to, right? (laughs) And they do that... I mean, I think principally because, you know, literalists are prone to pick verses out of context. They're afraid of scientific observations, apparent contradictions in the word, even though there aren't any. They're afraid of mysteries. They're afraid of problem verses. Like, you know, in Exodus, when there's a a place where, um, uh, in Scripture, where it, it literally says that God came to extinguish the life of Moses. I mean, you're like, is that really in there? Well, the literalist is not... He doesn't, doesn't want to deal with verses like that. And I'm not saying that there's anything bad about that, that passage, but they're not, they're not really willing to learn or press through any difficult things or uh, uh, difficult verses or circumstances that don't line up with their gospel of selection, meaning they pick a few verses out of here to stand on, but not the whole thing. And I say this word is alive. You can no more take a verse out of this book and stand on it alone, then you can take a thumb off of your body and expect it to live. This is the living word. It's not just a reference book. And so the literalist brushes off difficult questions with, well, I don't know, that's just what the Bible says. It's almost like throwing their hands up like, I don't know what it means, I don't know what it means for you, but that's what it says, so tough. Um, And this is the thing, though, about the literalist that has, I have seen many times and has broken my heart as I've watched it, is the literalist is always one disappointment away from a faith crisis because the soil is shallow. There's rocks in the soil, rocks of their own making, of our own making, sometimes of my own making that don't allow the seed of the word to go down to our spirit and take hold of us. 
And so when the storm comes, it's blown away. The filter of the literalist is fear. They're afraid things won't line up. Afraid of problem verses. Afraid of think every scientist on earth is of the devil because they're observing things. And, you know, I mean, it, it, it's, it is a 2D understanding of Scripture. The soil with thorns is another big word, a mythologist. A mythologist believes the high-level narrative that God loves everyone, which is true. And I'm not saying a myth, meaning a myth, something that's fabricated or untrue, like a fake story. A myth just means a story of origin. It's a story in which all other stories hang on to. It's um, where everything else is connected. It's where we draw the meaning for the stories that we have in the, in the circumstances in our lives. We hang our stories on the story, this story. And so in that, you know, we, uh, the mythologist believes the high-level narrative, but the mythologist, like the thorns around that choke the plant, they're unsure of the details. They're unsure of the supernatural, unsure of instructions that seem counterintuitive. When presented with passages that are politically incorrect, socially inconvenient, scientifically non-conforming to the status quo, or personally sacrificial, the mythologist backs away and returns to the simplicity of the myth that God loves everyone, which is true, but undeveloped. They don't perceive the, under, they don't perceive the intention of all that is shared, just the headline. When a mythologist reads the creation account of Genesis 1, he might say, well, that's a nice story for Sunday. And whether God actually created the universe in seven earth days or seven billion earth years doesn't really matter. The mythologist doesn't mind leaving Monday to Saturday for the conventional wisdom of evolution. The problem with that is that when a mythologist then reads Isaiah 53, 4, and 5, that Jesus bore our griefs, carried our sorrows, he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed, the mythologist won't be able to stand on it. Because you can't stand on something that you don't fully trust. You can't stand on something that you haven't fully accepted. You can't stand on something that's not fully alive in your heart. And standing, the filter of the mythologist is his own intellect. The filter that we receive the word, the thorny, is our own mind. We, we make, we, we uh, sometimes can use all of our mental faculties to decide what to accept and what to not accept. And then thereby we filter the seeds of his word out. Because oftentimes it's our intellect that needs changing, renewing, transforming. Which brings us to the last kind of soil, the last approach which is a disciple. The disciple has no filter on the word of God. No filter. The disciple receives the word as spirit, as living. 
and receives the word to his own or her own spirit and then allows the Holy Spirit to unwrap the scroll. What I mean by scroll is that oftentimes, like Ezekiel the prophet, um, uh, the Lord said, said, son of man, eat this scroll or the, this message that I'm giving you and fill your stomach with it. So I ate it, it. I ate it and it tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. Several other times in scripture in the prophets and even into Revelation, it talks about the word or the message of God as a scroll. It's something that we, we receive, we consume, and yet it's, it's wrapped up. We don't always know what it means yet, but we receive it because we perceive the intention of the one who's ga- who gave it. And then we allow the Holy Spirit to unwrap it. But we don't filter it first. We receive it first. And then we use our God-given intellect, our mind, our will, and emotions, joined with the Holy Spirit to unwrap the scroll and change our thinking, change our feelings, and allow the word to bear fruit in our lives, the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of his word and his promises. The disciple stays tethered to the rest of Scripture. A disciple trusts in God's character when parts of the scroll stay hidden. That's, that is, a, it used to be probably the hardest discipline for me as, as a Christian was to not understand everything. I have come to realize that my father does not keep things from me. He reveals to me what I need for good works, for godliness, for life. And sometimes he allows parts of the scroll to stay hidden for a season because I wouldn't, be able to, I, I wouldn't be able to handle it. It's for my own good. And as we know, we look back through church history through thousands of years, at least a couple thousand years, God has continued to unwrap the scroll in the church at large and in your life and generations upon generations of believers. He continues to unwrap the scroll of his message and his word. And a disciple, lastly, also accepts what is described and does what is prescribed. Meaning there are many things that are described in this book, like, for instance, Abraham, the father of faith, lied to Pharaoh about his wife being his sister because he thought he didn't want Pharaoh to kill him for his wife. Well, that's described. That is not prescribed for you to do. Amen. What I'm saying is that, there, that, that God in his infinite wisdom showed us the life, the challenges, the successes, everything about the men and women of God that he chose in his family. They're like us. They're men and women like us. We can see their, even ways that they fell short and they mischaracterized God. It's recorded here. And how he corrects and he, he holds, like I was saying, how he holds us sometimes until after 40 minutes we finally surrender and give up. All of it's recorded. It's part of the story. 
But we have to know as a disciple, a disciple knows that everything that is described is not prescribed. You can't just pick a verse out of here and say, that's what I'm supposed to do. We have to perceive the, un- the intention for which it was given and be able to tell the difference between Genesis 12 about Abraham and Hebrews 12 that says, make every effort to live in peace with everyone. That is prescribed. And to do, really, a disciple like James 1.22 is not someone who merely listens or hears the word and in so deceiving ourselves. A disciple does what it says, or literally in the Greek, becomes what it says. It's not just something that we act out with no faith. It's something that grows in us and bears fruit. We become This word is what we're becoming. You know, I've seen all these approaches, these soil types in my life in different seasons. None of us are, we're not all once a consumer, always a consumer, or once a literalist, always a literalist, once a mythologist, always a mythologist. We're not just rocky or thorny or by the path. If you look back at your life, you will see yourself in all of these categories at different places. But I entreat you, please, unleash your inner disciple. Lay behind the thorns and the rocks and the places by the side of the path and pursue becoming a disciple of the living word and the written word. Jesus and his written word are inseparable. To become a disciple of Jesus is to become a disciple of this book. To become a disciple of his word. So what is it about his word? What is the nature and the power of God's word? What is the word of God? Well, one, it's a divine expression of God. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, this is from the Amplified. That's the Bible I was trained under. Thank you, Jim. It's from the Amplified. All Scripture is God-breathed, given by divine inspiration, and is profitable for instruction, for conviction of sin, for correction of error, and restoration to obedience, for training in righteousness, learning to live in conformity to God's will, both publicly and privately, behaving honorably with personal integrity and moral courage, so that all believers, whether man, woman, or child, may be complete and proficient, outfitted and thoroughly equipped for every good work. This Scripture is God-breathed. It's a divine expression. It's not just text. It's not just reference material. It's alive. It's living. It's divine. Every word that God has ever spoken is just as real today as when he spoke it. It's still producing fruit today, the same as when, it, when he spoke it. It still has as much fire, as much energy as much passion, as much power today, and it will forever. It's literally, God's word is forever settled and sufficient. Psalms 119 says, your word, Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. That means once, it's, once he's spoken it, it's forever. That's why we can trust in his salvation. 
It's also infallible, which just means without error. Proverbs, 30 chapter, uh, Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5 says, Every word of God is flawless. It's without error. You know, God is not a man that he should lie. There's no deceit in him. There's no manipulation in him. And so there's no manipulation, no mistrust, no error, no flaw in his scripture, in what he's said. God's word is alive and it's active. Hebrews chapter 4 says, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. This word cannot be stopped. It will accomplish what God sent it to do. Every word that he speaks that's recorded will accomplish what it was sent to do. And the word of God is working continually. That's what Isaiah chapter 55 says. It says, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. As we mix our faith, as we believe what's here, what he said, we mix it with our faith and we begin and we become it and we begin to do it and act on it. It bears fruit in our life. So how can we know the Bible is the word of God? I mean, we've been talking about the word of God. We've been using a lot of self-references, right? We reference things in here. And so how can, you know, the, the student or the, the, the student at many of our academic institutions might say, well, how can I know really that this, okay, I can trust the word of God, but how can I know that the Bible, what you're saying, what you're holding in your hand actually is the word of God? Well, one, it is scientifically and historically accurate. That is not to say that this is a physics textbook or it describes in subatomic detail all of the way that um, creation works and operates. It's not a technical manual. It's a user guide. It's for everyone. We can use it and live it and own it. In any level of... Uh, intellectual development from kids can use the word, adults can use the word. Everybody, this word is for everyone. It's for all of us. It's, it's bread and seed. And so we know that the pursuits of theology or our understanding of scripture and science must ultimately agree because we're looking at the same creation. Just science looks at it from observing what they see, the evidence of physical activity and theology, we look at it through the lens of Scripture and what God said about it. I want to just offer up something. One, if you were a scientist and you were able to witness when God said, let there be light, how could you measure that? Like, what would it actually look like? Well, here's a way some of the scientists compare or describe the Big Bang. They say that cosmic inflation, that means the ability of the cosmos to expand from something smaller than the head of a pin to millions of light years across, that cosmic inflation, while at the same time being stable in that 
that inflation, that acceleration, it would have to get from this pinhead to millions of light years across faster than the speed of light in 10 to the negative 34th fraction of a second. So what I'm, I'm saying is, is that, okay, if we can accept that the cosmos could expand from a pinhead to millions of light years across in 10 to the negative 34th fraction of a second and be stable in the same instant, are they describing let there be light? I don't know. I'm not saying, I, I, I'm not saying that that is for sure ex that everything about what, scientists have observed about the Big Bang is accurate. I'm just saying that the pursuit of science to observe what's happened in creation and the word of God that is God's word about what he said about it ultimately will agree. And historically, right, continual archaeological discoveries confirm the existence of Old Testament civilizations and the accuracy of biblical events. Things, you know, they questioned whether Babylon existed and whether, you know, uh, this king, you know, existed or whether, um, you know, all these things had been questioned. Well, because we, we didn't see the remains of the cities. Well, over the decades, as many of you who might be the students of apologetics have seen, year after year, Archaeological finds confirm this city was where the Bible said it was, and these people moved from one place to the other where the Bible said they did. And over and over, historical and archaeological finds confirm that what's in Scripture actually happened. And the second is that Jesus is the prophesied Messiah. You know, there are 55 specific and detailed prophecies about Jesus that came to pass. And that's why I like using this particular Bible. It's called the Jesus-Centered Bible. Um, and you're used to having red letters about what Jesus said in the New Testament, but this has a bunch of blue letters all throughout the Old Testament that really describe or highlight for us where Jesus, where uh, people prophesied about Jesus or where the, um, the idea of Jesus as Messiah was represented. And so you begin to see that it's not just an old story and a new story. It's the story. It's the testament of Jesus. It all points and describes history as it leads up to the birth and the redemption story around Jesus and the birth of the church afterwards, which is us. It's the testament of Jesus. And so I like using um, that as one of, the, one of the translations or one of the versions that, um, because it allows me to see Jesus from the vantage point looking forward, not just looking back. Um, and Peter Stoner, the head of mathematics and astronomy at Pasadena College, conducted an extensive study a few years back with 600 researchers on the predictive quality of the texts written about Jesus in the Old Testament. And the conclusion to his research was staggering. The prospect that anyone would satisfy even eight prophecies, eight out of the 55, was just one in 10 to the 17th power. In Science Speaks, he described it like this. Suppose that we take 10 to the 17th silver dollars and lay them on the face of Texas. They will cover the entire state two feet deep. Now mark one of these silver dollars and stir the whole mass thoroughly all over the state. Blindfold a man and tell him that he can travel as far as he wishes, but he must pick up just one silver dollar and say that this is the right one. What chance would he have of getting the right one? Just the same chance that the prophets would have had of writing these eight prophecies and having them all come true in any one man from their day to the present time, providing they wrote using their own wisdom. Folks, he is who he said he is, and we can know it, and we can know it.
So what does the word of God accomplish in us? Jesus is the living word, the flesh. This word dwelt among us in human skin so we can know what this word looks like and feels like and tastes like and sounds like. We can know what this word looks like in human form. So everything we learn about scripture, we can see in Jesus. And every way we follow Jesus and we look at it, we can see it confirmed in the word. So what does this word accomplish in us? Well, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> it keeps us from sin, Psalms 119, 9 to 11. It produces holiness, John 17, 17. It gives us guidance, Psalm 119, 105. It makes us wise, Psalm 19, 7. It gives life and health, Proverbs 4, 20. It helps us discern error, 2 Timothy 2, 15. It gives protection and safety, Proverbs 1, It produces prosperity and success, Joshua 1, 8. It gives long life, Proverbs 3, 1 and 2. It produces faith, Romans 10, 17. It brings answers to prayer, John 15, 7. It produces love, 1 John 2, 5. It produces hope, Romans 15, 4. It produces peace, Psalm 119, 165. It produces joy, Jeremiah 15, 16. It produces freedom, John 8, 31 and 32. But wait, there's more. It gives patience and comfort, Romans 15, 4. It brings the blessings of God, Deuteronomy 28. It reveals our righteousness in Christ, Romans chapter 117. It illuminates our identity in Christ, Colossians 1, 27. It revives and quickens us, Psalms 119. It strengthens us and reveals our inheritance, Acts 20, 32. It causes us to grow, 1 Peter 2, 2. It teaches us to discern good and evil, Hebrews 5, 13. It renews our minds, Romans chapter 12. It trains and matures us, 2 Timothy 3, 16. It purifies our souls, James 1, 21. It perfects our love for Jesus, John 14, 23. It deepens our relationship with God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, John 14, 23. And it shapes us into true disciples, John 8, 31 and 32. It does what Jesus is in our life. They're inseparable. And yes, I made a whole list of that, and it's on blue copies of the information table so you can get them on the way out. I figured uh, I didn't want anyone taking pictures of, of the slide. <laughs> Kidding. So where do we start? You have to fix your approach. The disciples' approach is simple to understand and difficult to execute, like landing a plane. It's three things. We search the scriptures daily. If you don't spend time in God's word, there's no seed being sown. Let me just let that sink in. If you don't spend God's time in God's word, there's no seed, capital S, seed, being sown. Get in the word of God. Stay in the word of God. That's one thing I learned from Brother Jim 18 years ago. His defining characteristic, at least in my life, he loves the word. And I'm grateful that a little of that love got passed on to me. You know, I asked him one time, I said, if you were, you know, we were doing one of these stupid quizzes and said, what, 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 if you were stranded on an island with nothing, what is the one thing you would pick to have with you? And I, I, I wasn't even thinking about it. And he said, I would take 
his word. Just his word. If I had his word, I'd have it all. We need to search the scriptures daily. We need to meditate and believe. Meditation is that we consume the scroll into our spirit. We receive it as spirit. And then we allow the Holy Spirit in our mind to work with our mind, our will and emotions, to bring it back up and to let it ruminate, to let it roll around, to think about it throughout the day, to allow it to form us and shape us, correct us and change us, to meditate and to believe, to believe it, to allow ourselves to be malleable in the hands of our Father. And the third thing is to do the Word. Become the Word. Act on it. That's one of the great things that I learned at Agape. We do the Word. We act on it. We step out. We live it. Mix the word with your faith. Do the word. All right. 1129. I'm, that clock is accurate, and we're going to get out right at 1130. Here we go. So stand with me, and I'm going to pray a blessing over you from Psalms chapter 1, 1 through 3. This is from the voice, the voice translation. This will be a call to action. Not a call necessarily to the altar, but prayer team, can you please come forward? We definitely do want to pray with you, agree with you, stand with you. This is Psalms chapter 1, 1 through 3 from The Voice. God's blessing follow you and await you at every turn. When you resist the advice of those who delight in wicked schemes, when you avoid sin's highway, when judgment and sarcasm beckon you but you refuse... For you, the word of God is your happiness. It is your focus, your meditation day and night. You are like a tree planted by flowing, cool streams of water that never run dry. Your fruit ripens in its time. Your leaves never fade or curl in the summer sun. No matter what you do, you prosper. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and for your love. Thank you for Jesus, the living word. Thank you for your scriptures, your written word. Let our faith be aroused and mixed with the word, the story, living and active, powerful, full of promise, pregnant with promise, God. Thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that we would be that we would unleash our, in, our inner disciples this week and in the coming weeks to reinspect the foundation, to search the scriptures, meditate and believe them, to become them, to do them, to do the word. God, you've been so gracious to us to reveal so much, to give us so much life and godliness. We praise your name, and we go forth with a shout of joy that truly the living word is alive. Amen. All right. Be blessed, and we will see you all next week.